This morning, we've got Richard, who's going to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about who he is. And, um, and so, let's just welcome Richard as he comes to share our table talk this morning. Thank you, Tara. Well, it's a great privilege to, uh, to, to be able to share a little bit with you uh, all this morning. So, um, for those of you that... Um, don't know me. My name is Richard. I've been um, coming along to Sanctuary Church for probably about four or five months now. So the time has flown by, but it's been absolutely lovely to come along and to be welcomed uh, into this community. But I wanted to just share with you a bit, uh, a little bit about my own uh, story um, and perhaps how I arrived here and and came here. So uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'm actually work as a chaplain for Salvo Stores. I've been with Salvo Stores now for about um, three years and uh, worked in chaplaincy for about five years. Um, my journey of faith, I guess, sort of really started when I was a child. And I remember being a young child and having a number of what you could call spiritual experiences as a child. And, and that memory really lingered in me uh, for most of my life, and when I um, was in my 20s, I, I went on what you could call a, a quite a deep and profound spiritual journey, and um, not in a Christian sense to begin with. Uh, it took me to Asia. I spent a number of years traveling in the Far East and India, and uh, when I came back to the UK, to London, I... Um, started to study Buddhism, and um, I had been in the Buddhist tradition for about 15 years, uh, studied all the different traditions of uh, Buddhism, and I was actually ordained as a Bodhisattva in Mahayana Buddhist tradition, which, is, which was the tradition of Zen Buddhism. And it was during that time of uh, studying meditation that I came across uh, a Christian author. Uh, Some of you may know him. He's one of the greatest Christians of the 20th century, uh, someone called Thomas Merton. And um, I started to study and read about Thomas Merton, and I started to feel for the first time, you know, maybe there's something in the Christian faith. Um, This this guy um, that I was reading was not your ordinary Christian. There was a depth to him that was quite profound. And um, so I started to read about Christianity and uh, must admit I had sort of, I was a Buddhist, but I sort of had Jesus on the side as well. (laughs) It was a bit, uh, you know, was I a Christian Buddhist or a Buddhist Christian? I I don't know, but it seemed as though that was sort of, you know, had this dual belonging that was going on for a number of years. And then what happened is the global financial crisis hit the UK and um, it was a very difficult time. I was in a place where I can't fix it, I can't control it, I can't explain it, I can't understand it. Um, my family were depending on me, and I was sat outside of an old English church, an old ancient church, all alone. And I remember crying out to God, and I just said, um, I need a miracle right now. And I remember saying, 
if you help me now, I will live my life for you. And um, I really experienced uh, what you could felt like an energetic shift that, that I experienced in myself. And it was like the atmosphere changed. And I knew that I knew that I knew that something was going to change. And I couldn't put my finger on it. But a few weeks later, I looked at an advertisement in uh, a magazine and there was a job that happened to be in Australia and they were looking for clinical psychologists and I was from a a health safety well-being background and it was outside my occupational field and it was applying neuropsychology in the health and safety industry and I looked at this advertisement and I knew I was going to get the job. I didn't know how I knew, I just knew it was just a knowing And uh, I applied for the job, and I got the job. And uh, that's what brought me to Australia. And it moved from Brisbane to Perth. I came to Perth, which was strangely a place where I had spent six months as a child. And it was the place where I had those experiences as a a child. And um, so that's what brought me to Australia, And then after coming to Australia, um, I found myself sort of invited into a church community. And I remember um, deciding to learn more about Christianity and the Bible and, and, and to come into the Christian faith. And I remember one night after a pastor preached at the church I was at at the time, and I went home and this incredible sense of presence or, or love uh, came over me. And I, and I remember observing my own experience as though a scientist would observe an experiment. I remember lo- looking within myself or feeling within myself and thinking, what's happening? Something is happening. This, is, this, is, this presence, this sense of the holy, uh, it just, it was an incredible experience. And um, from that point on, you know, I started to do a lot of study um, and, um, and then came across the ministry of chaplaincy. And I remember feeling electricity come into me and I just felt like this is what I've been looking for all my life. And um, I remember having a meeting with the state director of Chaplaincy Australia and uh, everything clicked and uh, I find myself giving up my previous job, my career as a, um, a, a consultant and coming into chaplaincy and training as a chaplain and, and getting work experience as a chaplain and then coming um, eventually into work as a chaplain for Salvo Stores and looking after about a thousand volunteers over 54 stores soon Um, and that includes staff volunteers and customers providing pastoral and spiritual care to uh, a a large community and it's been such an honor and a privilege to be in that position why did I come to Sanctuary Church (laughs) Um, you know how funny things work, and you know I, I have to admit to you, I'm a self-confessed fan of Father Richard Raw, 
And um, I was listening to some podcasts, and there was this guy that was interviewing Father Richard Rohr on on this podcast. And I heard at the end of the the interview, I thought, "This, this guy's actually from Western Australia. There's actually somebody in Western Australia who knows the Father Richard Rohr. And, uh, and I stalked this guy on the internet, and uh, it happened to be Jared. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, but that's what sort of brought me into uh, Sanctuary Church. And uh, I, I really feel this community is a community that is um, on the cusp of something really powerful and new. And, uh, and I don't know if you're feeling it, but I've been feeling it for a number of years, that that. The church is on the cusp of something new. I really feel that there are many people who want to have what I would call a 21st century theological and spiritual conversation. And there are increasing numbers of people who are not just interested in just a belief system, just a set of propositions, but they're interested in actual experiential knowledge of God. Richard Rohr once said, you know, he said, transformed people, transform people. And um, it's from actual inner experience of transformation, I believe, that we can be that light of the world and that we can go out there and transform people's lives. And, and it's not just a personal thing. It's actually bringing God's kingdom onto earth as it is in heaven. And... Um, and I really believe that's what we're here to do and, and, and what the mission of perhaps this church is as well. And um, so, yeah, I just wanted to share that with you and, um, you know, encourage you all that when we really seek God, you know, not just in a superficial way once a week, but we kind of, you know, really, really want God to be the very center of our lives that there is just a beautiful, beautiful um, reality, a profound depth, a spiritual depth. Um, and uh, so I'm, I think I've gone on too long, but, um, but I just want to hand over to... Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? Thomas Merton, who uh, Richard was quoting, that helped him on this journey. Merton talks about that the deepest form is not communication, but is actually communion. The importance of the sermon is for us to to gaze upon Jesus in such ways that we fall in love again, that we come and not think about God, but experience God as the mercy seen in Jesus. Thomas Merton says that the whole atmosphere of the New Testament is that of liberation through mercy. And the series we're in at the moment is a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we've called it, hello little one, and we've called it um, Following um, Christ-like God. And it's my prayer that the integrity of Richard's journey and the way that he has been haunted by Christ through all sorts of different traditions might be our experience as well. Um, As a way of doing this, we'll read the passage. And then I want to do um, three different takes. And um, they might get more complex as we go down. But if one of them is speaking to you today and that's all you need, feel free to take just that. 
But what I want us to do is give this text back to us and these texts back to us in such ways that the integrity of Richard's journey that you've just heard about, of what it is to be haunted by a Christ who hides everywhere, would become our experience in such ways that we would experience the liberation of mercy. So for one final time before we come round the table, those who are able, would you stand? We're in Matthew's Gospel, the fifth chapter, starting at verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the Torah and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, by any means will disappear from Torah until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks the least of these teachings and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we welcome you in this space. Lord, we ask that uh, you would save us from the kind of religion that protects us from you, that you'd save us from the kind of reading of the Bible that protects us from the Bible. Instead, you'll deliver us into that dangerous space where we're safe in the kind of love that demands everything changes in light of Jesus. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Jesus, we long to gaze upon you, to see you clearly, that, Father, we might know you through your Son. So Holy Spirit, do your will. Do your will, Holy Spirit. May the words on my lips and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, for truly you are our rock and our Redeemer. And all those who love God and are intrigued by a God that looks like Jesus said, Amen. Have a seat. Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verse 1 to verse 3, reads like this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to possess and drive out before many nations, the Hittites, the Gerashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. This is the word of the Lord. The question for us is what do we do with passages that don't look much like Jesus? And one of the answers that many people want to go to is that you delete them. One of the ways that many of us approach that stuff in ourself that is problematic is we wish for it to be deleted. Yet what we have in scripture is the most problematic stuff is actually left in. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who is chief rabbi of London, puts it like this. The Hebrew Bible is the supreme example of the rarest phenomena, a national literature of self-criticism. Other ancient civilization record victories. The Israelites recorded their failures. It's what the Mosaic and prophetic books are all about. 
according to the most respected rabbinical teacher in the world today, as he's considered in many circles, the inspiration of Scripture is not that the messiness isn't there. It's that it is there. See, if we were wanting to write self-propaganda, we would edit out all the stuff that doesn't make us look great. When people ask me, give me a reason for why the Bible is inspired, I'm like, do you see what is left in there? If we have scriptures that aren't at least as messy as us, there aren't much good news to us. And people say, oh yeah, the Old Testament is about, and we've been using this language the whole time, a list of must-do. And that all the Old Testament is a list of must-dos that you must do. Only you realize that you can't do them, and the New Testament is about can't-dos. And the only problem with that is that it doesn't fulfill the law. That doesn't even value the law. Some of us might be influenced by more Lutheran circles and know that this is actually how Luther talked about the gospel. This stuff is bad, and it teaches us we're bad, and that's why we have grace. And the only problem with that is the text that we have today, which isn't saying that Jesus abolishes Torah and the prophets, but in fact what Rabbi Jonathan Sachs talks about, that this inspired literature that actually shows clearly the confession of how problematic we are, that is what Jesus fulfills. And so the question is, how do we read such texts? And the first way we're going to answer that question is with my mate Bruxy. We've got a photo of Bruxy up here. And uh, this is a photo of, uh, there's me and Bruxy. And this is Bruxy getting his tattoo of Leviticus 19.28. For those who don't know, Leviticus 19.28 reads along the lines of uh, do not mark your body for the dead, um, which some pastors take as a reason for not to get tattoos as Christians, is this passage. And this is what Bruxy is getting tattooed across his arm. The tattoo artist who was asking about it is like, oh, so you have a problem with religion? He's like, yeah. And I said, uh, so you're not much into church? And he's like, no, I'm senior pastor of the biggest church in Canada. And they're like, what's the deal? But for Bruxy, the reason why he's tattooing this on his arm is a living invitation for people to ask him how he reads the scriptures. See, for Bruxy, this isn't a set of must-dos or a list of reasons why you can't do, but what God is doing. And how the Bible works, despite the Bible bumper stickers about the Bible that says, Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, is that that's got nothing to do with the witness of the church. It's got nothing to do with what is going on in this particular passage. Bruxy would sum it up and did so uh, recently in an interview that I did with him for Inverse. I think Tash has got that for us. Appreciate those who say we need to follow the Bible, we need to um, uh, submit to the Bible, and, and be people of the book. And I love their heart in that. I don't think they know the danger of what they're saying. Yes. And that what those words are not really Christian words per se. Wow. And just to be clear, yeah. Bruxy, for those who are listening to you for the first time, yeah. you're a pastor. Yes. Like, and you're saying the danger of the Bible mm. um, is that people might follow it. <laughs> yeah, that would be horrible, really. And because yeah. whenever they have, it's turned terrible. Yes. Yeah. When they follow it, when they follow it. Yeah. Um, but if they see that the whole thing is pointing to Jesus, and then some people say, oh, I see, so you're just saying only read the bits about Jesus. Say, no, you read the whole thing differently now. As a follower of Jesus, I see the whole thing as providing nuance and context and information and background mm. to help me follow Jesus better. Wow. But I do follow Jesus. I read the book to follow Jesus. Mm. I don't just follow the book. Beautiful. So f for some of us, that will be enough today. 
for some of us, what we need to hear is that we don't follow the Bible, we follow Jesus. And the reason why we read the Bible is because we have, here's the fancy terms that the philosophers use, a relational epistemology, not a foundational epistemology. I can't spell those words. But what that means is that the answer for us isn't, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Because the Bible argues with itself all the time. That's not faithful to the Bible. In fact, people who approach the Bible like that, I wonder if they've even read the Bible. The people of God in the Old Testament, a name for this dude whose name was Dodgy, and it gets changed to the wrestler. For those who don't know where I'm at, I'm in Genesis chapter 32, and Dodgy, his name, we often say, is what? Jacob. Jacob, his name means supplanter. That means one who trips someone else up. Esau's coming out, grabs his heel, takes his birthright. Here's how the Bible talks about God's people. Dodgy. By name. By nature. And yet in your dodginess, you haven't given up on God. Let me actually read one of the passages, and this is how the people of God, this was their self-understanding. You know how Jesus chooses 12 people? For anybody with a Jewish imagination, you know the 12 people is a sign of what? 12 tribes. That's right. The 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus, it doesn't matter who these people are because it's not about their integrity. It's about what it symbolizes for God's people. And so that's why they draw straws in the book of Acts to go, who's going to be the other one? They are named as a people who are dodgy and yet stay in the wrestle. Here's how Genesis 32, 24 reads, So Dodgy, okay, Jacob, was left alone, and one wrestled with him until daybreak. This is a weird story. When the one saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. So his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with this one. Then the one said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. Then the man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but one who wrestles, Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. And Jacob said, Please tell me what your name is. But he replied, and here's the Father Bob translation, None of your business. Why do you ask me my name? Then he blessed him there. Here's how for the Jewish people they understand scripture. It is not the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Is it instead it's the Bible says it, other parts of the Bible disagree with it, I will wrestle with it, I won't let go of it until it blesses me, sanctifies me, and brings me into the work that God's already doing in such a way that I become a person where the things that are broken and are dodgy in me can be renamed in the wrestle as something that is a blessing for others. That's the story. That's a Jewish understanding of Scripture. And the problem with how so many people read passages like we've got today is that they have this subtle anti-Semitism that says, Old Testament, bad. New Testament, good. The problem with that is if you make the Old Testament a list of must-dos and the New Testament a list of 
can't do's. You don't get in on what this text is talking about. You become a person who wrestles with God in such ways that you have to limp through life because you've been wounded by the kind of compassion and grace that means that you walk differently. If you have not read the Bible in such ways that you walk through the world as somebody who's been wounded by mercy, somebody who's been impacted by grace, somebody who's been marked in such a way that it's not about the quality of your character and being a perfect person, but being able to transparently, once day breaks, walk in such a way that is clear that that is someone who has encountered God, you're not reading the Bible. Jesus does not come to abolish Torah and the prophets. Jesus comes to fulfill Torah and the prophets. So for us, it's not that the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. For us, it is, the Bible says it, different parts of the Bible disagree with it, I will wrestle with it, I will not let go of it, until it blesses me in such a way that I become a blessing for others, it sanctifies me, that I start to look like my Saviour. Jesus does not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. So Tara asked me, what are you going to call Sunday Sermon? I said, taking the Bible more seriously than the fundamentalists. Tara sent me that little meme of Homer disappearing back into the hedge. You know that one where it's like... Tara then sent me a message saying, doesn't that kind of other a little bit? I want to bring us back into the context of our text so you can see Jesus is picking fights and who Jesus picks fights with. Because a Christ-like God doesn't mean a safe God, a mild God. It means a God that is unquestionably on one side of the wrestle and asks us to join God there. So for those who are joining us for the first time, here's the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying a new world is breaking in in such ways that blessed are those who are poor and are with the poor in spirit. Theirs is God's dream for all of reality. Theirs is what God longs to do for all of reality. There is God's dream of a world transformed. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And from blessed are the poor in spirit, he then goes straight into blessed are those who mourn, whose heart breaks for the things that God's heart breaks for. From there he goes, blessed are the meek, which has got nothing to do with weakness and has got everything to do with all that we are, that power of our response of once we've come alongside those that are hurting, realize that's where God shows up in Jesus. And once we feel the grief of a world that is broken and our heart breaks for the things that God's heart breaks for, our anger, our grief in response, when that is channeled like it is for the meek, it becomes a force for good. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, inherit the land. It goes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will take part in the economy of mercy, which is how the world really works. Blessed are those who are transparent in heart, who don't do cover-up, but like Jacob, are prepared to wrestle in such way that your dodginess can be transformed into somebody who is known to... Hold out all that you are with such transparency that you see God. Where Jacob's wrestles is called what? Does anybody know? Camille. The place where you saw the face of God. Those who are transparent about your dodginess, the face of God is a promise in response to that. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are you who are persecuted because of God's healing justice, for yours is the kingdom 
of heaven. Blessed are you when all people insult you and say kind of all kind of false things against you. Here's the only command in the Sermon on the Mount so far. Rejoice. A new world is underway. And if you're found in the places God is found, good news. You're participating in what God's doing. Then it goes on and it says, and Tara put it so beautifully, you, if you are found in those places, those places where people say you're disqualified, you don't count, God is not working there. And Tara put it so beautifully last week and she said, you, you who are poor, you who are mourning, you who are meek, you who hunger and thirst for God's justice to flood all things, you are salt, you are light. So shine. In the Hebrew, uh, in the Greek, in this passage, it doesn't read "so let your light shine." It's too passive. Passive. It actually reads "so shine, shine." So that's who Jesus is talking to. And so, in the presence of people who are hurting, people who need a new world, Jesus says to them, "I have not come to abolish Torah and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them." What kind of claim is that? Because we've just read Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 3, and clearly that clashes with Jesus. What I find so surprising, and the subtle anti-Semitism of some Christians when they're teaching texts like this, is that they start to say things like, well, Jews use these texts to back up genocide. I mean, name for me throughout history when the Jewish people have actually used the Torah in such ways that do those kind of stuff. You know who do those kind of stuff? I mean, those who know history, who uses the Bible in such ways that actually doesn't look like Jesus? We have ways of reading the Bible where we abolish what Jesus came to fulfill. And in doing so, we make Jesus a chaplain of our colonization of other peoples, other lands, in something that looks like anti-kingdom, anti-Christ. Jesus comes to fulfill it, and he's picking fights. Look who he's picking fights with. Verse 19, Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the who? Pharisees. Pharisees are the self-appointed insiders. And it says teachers of the law. Jesus is clearly picking fights. Let me show you how, let, let's stay in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 23, starting at verse 13. And Richard and I were talking about this before. How would we say woe today? Woe is a sense of like grief and anguish, but also like there is trouble coming, like don't you know where this is headed? And I honestly think if we're going to translate woe in a way that had the kind of effect and impact that it has here in chapter 23, it'd be like, damn. And we need to understand it in this context. Teachers of the law are those who teach Bible. Pharisees are self-appointed insiders. And Jesus in chapter 13 says, damn you, Bible teachers and self-appointed insiders, you hypocrites, you play-acting. You shut God's dream for all people in people's faces and you don't enter in on it yourself. Damn you, teachers of the Bible and you self-appointed insiders, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make one convert, to offer one altar call, 
And when they do convert to you, you make them twice the son of hell as you are. This is Jesus. Jesus is picking fights with those who say, I will use this to back up my agenda in such way that this becomes a weapon. Instead of people who wrestle with this, people who wound others with this. A simple reading of scripture doesn't take Jesus seriously. The Pharisees were very serious about scripture. But listen to Jesus' critique of Bible teachers and self-appointed insiders. Damn you, verse 16. Blind guides, you say, if anybody swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if somebody swears by the gold of the temple, it means he's bound to oath. He's saying, you do all these word games about when you can rip people off, when you can be dodgy, when you can actually hide things, when you can have no integrity, as if there is a special religious way to actually screw people over. Screwing people over is a problem, not the religious way in which you do it. And Jesus makes this clear. He goes, and those who swear by the temple swear by the one that dwells in it. And he swears by the heavens, swears by God's throne, the one who sits on it. Verse 23, damn you, teachers of the Bible and you self-appointed insiders, you're hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, dill, mint and cumin. Some of us are cooks, some of us know what we're talking about. For those who don't get the reference, we're talking about your spice rack. And they're like, you care so much about the small details that even in your kitchen, you're setting aside to fulfill this like thing. But Jesus says, and listen, don't miss this, verse 23, but you have neglected the most important matters of Torah. Oh, I wish Jesus said what they were. He does, right here. Next word is what? Justice. Next word is what? Mercy. Next word is what? Faithfulness. So for some of us today, and we're wondering, how do I relate to the Bible? This should become precious to us in such ways that we wouldn't read it without Jesus, because Jesus is the only way we have permission to read it. This is a Jewish text, and the way that you are derogatory about this Jewish text, old and new, does no favours to you. You need to rightly name like Jesus does the problematic ways that people use this to hurt instead of heal. But the problem is not in the book. The problems, to put it another way, are us and what we do with it. Are you saying that the book is perfect? The book isn't about being perfect. It's about redemption. It gives you the problem and the solution. And if you hold up parts of the problem, you'd never get to how it's transformed. I've been in ministry since I was 18, and I decided that I wouldn't go through a litany of stories of the horrific ways that people have shared with me over the years how scripture is used. Because none of those stories are funny, even though they're enlightening. You think about the most horrific things that people can experience, and people have come to me and said, Bible was used to justify. And Jesus' response to that is, that book isn't yours. It's mine. I interpret it. I gave it. And that's why in Colossians 1.16 it says all things are created in Christ and through Christ and by Christ. There is no way for Christians to actually engage these texts where Jesus isn't found on every page. So for some of us we just need the Bruxy answer, which is don't follow the Bible. Read the Bible to follow Jesus. We need to take the Bible more seriously than the Pharisees. Some of us need to read the Bible in ways that are more Jewish, like Jesus, and less pharisaical like so many Christians. Some of us need to read the Bible in ways that it becomes a wrestle, 
not set of proof texts that backs up how I was already living. The Bible should haunt us, trouble us, because it's a troubling text about the wrestle of salvation. And Jesus is the crescendo of that in such ways that it should surprise and trouble us even more. And Jesus in this is picking fights with those who are self-appointed insiders saying, I'll tell you how to read it. And anybody who reads it in ways that harms other, Jesus says, that's not yours. I'm not abolishing that, I'm filling it. And this is what it looks like. I'm tempted to just stay in Matthew 23, but I want to go to our next example. Our next slide. Anybody seen The Sixth Sense? I've got a photo here of the little kid and what he looks like today. So, spoiler alert, I'm going to talk about the end of the movie. It came out in 1999, okay? That's what the kid looks like today. It, if you haven't seen it, you're probably not going to miss out on it. Spoiler alert, if you're not used to being on church on a Sunday, Jesus is risen from the grave. Like, you should know that by now. Like, it's, it's an open story. Same with this. The Sixth Sense, for those who haven't seen it, is... Um, uh, M. Night Shyamalan's uh, 1999 movie about a kid who sees dead people. For those who have seen it, what is the twist at the end? Bruce Willis's character, who's a child psychologist who's been helping this kid, in the final five, six minutes, you find out he's been dead the whole time. And suddenly, you think back over the whole movie and it's like, my goodness, why could I not see that? What Jesus is saying in this passage is that he has come to fulfill the law. And we might not have been able to see on every page, like Deuteronomy 7, how Jesus fulfills the law. But when we start reading in Matthew 15, where Jesus is talking with a Canaanite woman, I mean, Canaanite is a strange way to refer to anybody at the time of Jesus. It's like referring to your Swedish friend as a Viking. It's like saying, I'm going to Ikea, that Viking store. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, what's, is it referring to your Irish friend as like my Celtic friend. It's like, that, that's an odd thing to do. The reason why the Gospel of Matthew is talking about Canaanites is because Deuteronomy 7 was promised that they, the people of God, the people who wrestle with God, were to do what to the Canaanites? Genocide. Jesus does this healing and feeding, and there are 12 baskets left over when Jesus is in Jewish territory. Then there's this interaction with a woman who's a Seraphonician woman who the text explicitly calls us back to Deuteronomy 7 and calls her a Canaanite. And Jesus is commanded to show her no mercy. That's what Torah says. Only Jesus does not abolish Torah, he fulfills Torah. And the deeper heartbeat of that text when read it through the heart of God who is Jesus, Jesus is the heart of God shown to us clearly, is that mercy is to be shown to enemies, and that this text is turned upside down. And that's why we have a second feeding in Matthew's Gospel, if we keep reading on, after the Canaanites. And how many tribes were to be wiped out in Deuteronomy 7? All of them, seven. Now the second feeding, it happens not on Jewish turf, but on Gentile turf, the seven tribes of the Gentiles. And guess how many baskets are left over the first time on Jewish turf? Twelve. Now, when we're on Gentile turf, guess how many baskets are left over? Seven. There is blessing 
what we initially read as genocide is actually God's generosity. And some people were like, oh no, but like we've got to balance the Old Testament with the New Testament. It's not your book. It's a Jewish book. Unless you're Jewish, this is not your book. The only permission you have for this to play with this and it not just be straight out appropriation is through Jesus. So how dare you read it in ways that reverses what Jesus is doing? And guess what? You hang out with your Jewish friends. They're not going to read it as a justification for genocide. So what's wrong with your reading of the text? So many people want to read the Bible in ways that look like self-appointed insiders that use it to back up their own agendas instead of what God is doing. So the easy answer that Bruxy would give you is don't follow the Bible, follow Jesus. Read the Bible because it will perfectly point us to Jesus. We could put it like this. Jesus is how God interprets the text for us. Jesus is how God interprets the text for us. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is saying, once you're found in the places that other people say are cursed, but God shows up so they become the very places that are blessed, once you hear that you are salt and light, you realize that Jesus fulfills all this stuff and that the point and purpose of Torah and the prophets has always been liberation. And now Jesus fulfills them in a way that we could never have guessed. It wasn't through destroying the enemy, but blessing the enemy. It wasn't killing the enemy, but dying for the enemy. The cross is the way in which God fulfills, in the most unlikely of ways, how the kingdom is coming. This is the joke of Christianity. Jesus is like, these are my people. And just like Sinai, Sinai doesn't start with, here's the Ten Commandments, do all these things, and that's Judaism. you just got to do, 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 do. It starts with God's gracious liberation from ancient Egypt. And then here's what it is to be my people that don't keep doing this Egypt-like project of dominating others. Jesus in the same way. It's grace, it's grace, it's grace. And here's what it is to not have a list of must-dos or can't-dos. But God will do through you so that you witness to how God fulfills all things. And it's with mercy. It's with that non-violent love, that Calvary-shaped, cross-formed, Jesus-like love, that God looks like Jesus. So my mate Brian's army put it like this. God looks like Jesus. God has always looked like Jesus. We might not have realized that, but now we do. Jewish people have always had a way of interpreting difficult texts, often with Mishnas. The most famous Mishnah that we encounter in Scripture is God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And that was used as a way of Jewish people reading back difficult texts and go, but what we know about God is God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Our Messiah, Jesus, is our mission. God is not just gracious. God is grace. God is not just loving. God is love. And when you see Jesus, now you've got permission to read all the stories. And the early church weren't going, well, how do we fit Jesus with this passage in the Old Testament? They're reading the Old Testament and they're going, look how this is fulfilled. Look how this is fulfilled. Jesus is that final twist in the whole thing and now we see the whole thing differently. Final example before we land. I love jazz. John Coltrane took a Broadway hit, The Sound of Music, which is about 
a former nun looking after kids in fascist, white supremacist, Nazi Germany and took this Broadway hit and said, I know something about fascism, but not in Germany. I know something about white supremacy, but not in Germany. And he gave back what was familiar to people in a way that they could never have imagined it could sound. Here is the version that you probably know from Julie Andrews. Feeling unhappy. I just try and think of nice things. What kind of things? Oh, well, let me see. Nice things. Daffodils. Green meadows. Skies full of stars. Raindrops on roses. And whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Ring any bells? You probably know it. I'm surprised my mum isn't singing it already. But Coltrane took this and his pursuit to actually express what his people are going through in the early 60s. This is only five years after Martin Luther King, after Rosa Parks' action in Birmingham, Alabama. And the civil rights movement goes on a national and then international scale. He takes this song of Broadway musical that is massive in the US and he passes it through the gospel and the blues tradition to bring it to jazz in such a way that it is given back to people in ways that people recognise it. It does not abolish it. It actually fulfils it. And strangely, it makes it more what it was than it was before. It was always about how do you seek comfort in a situation where the world looks cursed in the very places that God calls blessed. And so Coltrane gives it back in a way that sounds like the whirling dervishes were dancing in the background, in a way that brings the Eastern tradition of what it is to seek God and plays it in such a way that it sounds like you're in a black gospel church service on a Sunday while whirling dervishes are in the background and suddenly this is not a cute song sung by Julie Andrews, but instead it is a song that brings you into a truth-telling about what the nation was going through at that time in ways that are prophetic and yet strangely hope-filled, where the truth of what is happening is exposed, but also what is revealed is a strength, is a passion, is a hope that can't be defeated. And it sounds something like this. tempted to play the whole thing but I'm aware of the time and those who know Coltrane will know that this is the short version that was recorded in one week three albums he recorded in 1960 uh, this was on one of them and it goes for over 10 minutes this section a recording he did of the same track in Germany only five years later goes for over 25 minutes in Philadelphia once he played it for 45 minutes because the music is about entering into what the nation was going through in such a way that it was given back in ways that make you move differently. Jesus says that unless our understanding of justice, of righteousness, 
goes past that of the Pharisees. God's dream for all things is still inaccessible for us. And yet he says it to people who have been told that it's always inaccessible to them. And Jesus says, no, 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 here is what a righteousness, here is what a justice that surpasses the Pharisees looks like. It's not the Pharisees' version of self-appointed holiness, which is exclusion. Jesus says, my righteousness is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. My righteousness is the inclusion in God's dream for all things. My righteousness shows up in places that are deemed poor, in places where people mourn, in places where people's anger is expressed in such ways that it does not overtake them but becomes an energy to actually see the world transformed and land becomes theirs. Jesus is saying that there is a different righteousness that we're invited into. And you can't hear the song again. It becomes jazz. Now you read the whole thing and Coltrane is playing in the background and you don't hear this dun 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 It has a whole different time and different melody. You move through life differently. And the teachings of Jesus make us move through the text in such ways that we become a people who move through the world in different ways. And here's our difference. It's the kind of costly mercy that looks like the cross. It's the incredible grace that turns our world upside down. It's the kind of inclusion that is a greater righteousness than the Pharisees and how they use the scriptures to harm others. It's the healing which is found on every page when you let Jesus walk you through what's happening there. It will take even stories about genocide and transform it into a story of generosity. I don't know what those bits are in you that you wish would be edited out. But the good news of Jesus being the fulfillment of the law is those things in us are welcomed around this table where it's not merely about communication but communion. God is present in such ways that that which you wish would be edited out of you are the very places Jesus shows up and transforms it in ways that witness to the healing of all things. That's what it is to follow a Christ like God. Don't follow the Bible. Follow Jesus. If you follow Jesus, the Bible will become more precious to you and you'll take it more seriously than the fundamentals. You'll start to read the Bible in such ways that you will wrestle with it and not let go of it until it blesses you, sanctifies you, that your life would look more like his radical compassion, his nonviolent mercy, his delivering grace, his liberating love. That's what's welcome around this table. Those who know their name is dodgy and know if you wrestle, it gets transformed into you become a people who struggle and let mercy in. So as we gather around the table now, this is for all those who are ready for a mercy that wants you to wrestle until you become mercy. Blessed are the ones who do not Bury all the broken pieces of their heart. Blessed are the tears of all the weary, pouring like a sky of falling stars. Blessed are the wounded ones in mourning. 
Those who persevere, for though they fall. 